Welcome to the Conversations About Justice podcast. I'm Emily Sutcliffe. Today's episode is part of our Alumni in Action series focusing on COVID-19. Today, we're very lucky to be speaking with Sue Ming Ye. Sue Ming is the Executive Director of the Pennsylvania Institutional Law Project, an organization which provides free civil legal assistance to low-income people who are incarcerated or institutionalized in Pennsylvania, whose constitutional rights have been violated. While at Penn Law, Su Ming was recipient of the prestigious Toll Public Interest Scholarship. Su Ming, thank you so much for finding the time to speak with me today. I know how incredibly busy you are. I'm delighted to be here. Thank you again. Um, so just to jump in, uh, the main narrative around COVID-19 centers on the medical, biological impact of the virus itself, um, with little attention to the disparate and varied harm it's having on marginalized communities. Can you educate us about the ways the pandemic is impacting individuals and communities that the Pennsylvania Institutional Law Project serves? Sure. The coronavirus has had a quite a diverse impact on the community. And there's a divergence of how, in particular, people who are low-income indigent uh, are being affected by the coronavirus. And I think the news is focused on that. Our clientele are people who are incarcerated and institutionalized. And because they live in what is called a congregate setting or group setting, they are at particular risk of facing severe consequences if they are to get the coronavirus. So very traditionally, people who are incarcerated or in institutions often are very medically vulnerable. And those are the exact individuals who will suffer more if they are to get the coronavirus. Overall, prisons across the state have had some varied responses in preparing for and now implementing prevention methods for people who are incarcerated. So what we are seeing is people suffering under some conditions as a result of not only the coronavirus, but, but how prisons have reacted to it. Uh, thank you. And so when we think about folks who are um, institutionalized or in prison, how, how would their experience look differently if our society was more just and equitable? Well, if our society was more just and equitable, we would not have mass incarceration the way it is today. Uh, we would have, and people have different visions of how the correctional system would look. I imagine it would be more limited, more targeted, and therefore you wouldn't have the hordes of people that you have currently in prison. The numbers of prison immediately impact the effect of the coronavirus on individuals. You know, out here, the main talk is, okay, you need to social distance, stay at home, shelter in place. That is incredibly difficult in a group setting. And so we've heard in the news about nursing homes, prisons are no different from that. People are forced to live in uh, group settings. People also have no control over the settings that they are in. They are at the, the whim of whether or not the prison wants to provide soap hand sanitizer, sanitation cleaning supplies, whether they are in a cell with one other person or perhaps 40 other people, 70, 80 other people, um, they have no choice over that matter. So if we had less people in the criminal justice system overall, that would give the prisons more flexibility in dealing with preventative measures in prison. So I think that 
obviously a more hu equitable society would also have more humane living conditions for these those who are in prison. So not only access to sort of basic needs such as, you know, the soap and cleaning supplies, but also how they are living. One effect, unfortunate effect of this sort of shelter in place model, what the prisons will call it quarantine, really is lockdowns. People are, we have gotten many multiple reports across the state, county jail, uh, county jails, state prisons, federal, where people are in their cells, sometimes over 23 hours a day, sometimes days on end. And that also means that they don't have access to a shower. So you're, most people don't have a shower in their cell. So if you're not getting out of your cell, it means you're not getting a shower, you're not able to call your family. Um, so all of those have a devastating toll on people, both on their, their physical health as well as their mental health. Yeah, it's, it's, just, it's so, um, so disturbing to think about all of the ways that, that the issues that you all are already facing um, how they are just amplified beyond belief in a situation like this, where the the overcrowding and just the overpopulation of prisons um, just you know magnified beyond just comprehension. That's that's exactly right. Yeah. Well, you and your team, you've been doing amazing work related to these issues for your clients. Can you tell us a bit about you know what you've been doing? Sure. So when we first learned about COVID-19 or the coronavirus, we were immediately concerned about people who are in these institutions where they cannot leave of their own volition, people who are incarcerated. So we started off uh, getting organized as a staff to make sure we could monitor the situation across the state and investigate whenever we received complaints. Um, at first, it was a little bit slow. I, that's, I think, a couple reasons. One is a lot of the early focus was on getting people out, getting releases. And then when it became clear that not everyone was going to be released, then attention started to turn on what's going to happen once COVID crosses the prison wall. And that has certainly happened. Unfortunately, there have been deaths reported. You know, there have been a po positive test starting in March. Then the first death started. Uh, we... What we do is we've kept our phone lines open. Of course, not everyone can call us. We've also made sure that we can get mail. And whenever we get complaints, we investigate further. We do our best to talk to that individual if we are able to. Um, and then when needed, uh, and that certain, has certainly happened, we've received complaints that have caused grave concern. We will write an advocacy or demand letter to that facility uh, and engage in a dialogue with them. Now that has sometimes resulted in some changes and sometimes not. Uh, so the next step would be litigation. Um, the goal often is, especially with a smaller county jail, we would love to be able to resolve basic issues through that method, through the advocacy and zealous advocacy. But if not, we've, we have now since filed two class actions, one against the Gall County, Allegheny County Jail, and that's in partnership with a number of organizations, including the ACLUPA, um, Abolitionist Law Center, and Deckert. And we also have a class action against the Philadelphia Department of Prisons, and that's in collaboration with the ACLUPA, uh, Carries Rudofsky, Messing, Feinberg, and Lynn, and Deckert. Um, so we are progressing forward on both those cases. Uh, and at the same time, we continue to monitor the situation across the state. 
And is there a current story that you feel comfortable sharing with us that really brings the most upset story here? Sure. So one of our named plaintiffs in our Philadelphia lawsuit, uh, he suffers from sarcoma, which is a cancer. Uh, it's a type of cancer where he's at particular risk of it spreading to his lungs. So he needs to have chest x-rays conducted every six months to make sure it doesn't spread there. So he's Definitely, he definitely fits in the category of medically vulnerable because as we know the coronavirus, you know, for a lot of people it affects your ability to breathe and your respiratory system. Uh, he was placed in a dorm. So the detention, so the Philadelphia prison system is a little different from a lot of county jails in that it actually is four or five facilities. It's four main big ones and then it also has another one which traditionally has been used for work release. One of those facilities, the detention center, is a dorm. Most, many of the pods there are, are dorm settings. So you um, on a regular basis could be there with up to 60 people. Uh, so he was placed in the dorms, has been in this congregate setting. It's been extremely difficult, if not impossible, to social distance from the, the other people. When we first filed the lawsuit, it was we had gotten many reports that people were not able to get uh, soap, um, that the soap that was provided would run out. And if it ran out, they would not be able to get more, even if they requested it. Um, a lot of people who don't have money in their books can't buy it from commissary. Uh, cleaning supplies were not being provided, so people couldn't clean their own areas. Shared facilities, so in your dorm setting, you're sharing your toilets, you're sharing the showers, you're sharing sinks, those were not being cleaned. And on top of which, your bunk bed is roughly three feet away. So you have lots of people in a small space um, and the inability to, to stay separate from people. Um, also the issue of masks, for example, that's something that we have been advocating for. Um, of course, we know the dialogue on masks has changed um, as the time has passed, even out here. Um, and in the beginning, many people weren't provided masks, but they were provided one mask and told to wear that the whole time and with the inability to wash that, it would be like a cloth mask. Uh, similarly, uh, we were getting reports that correctional officers weren't consistently wearing masks or PPE, which of course is not only concerning for our clients and our client base, but also for prison staff in the broader community. Uh, the other um, situation that this client experienced was he started to get chills, headaches, fatigue, but they would not, they did not place him in medical isolation or test him because he did not have a fever. So just because he did not have one particular symptom of the coronavirus, um, he was, not, you know, he was not provided what we think might warrant, you know, a test to see if he has the coronavirus, medical isolation, so as not to spread to other people in that dorm. We know that the coronavirus can, the transmittability is very high. And so that, that's the particular danger of it. Not everyone gets sick. And we've now gotten so many reports uh, for the prisons that have done mass testing, for example, Montgomery County Correctional Facility, where large numbers of people, almost all, it was, I think, it was an extraordinary number uh, of people who tested positive were asymptomatic. So that's, that's the exact concern for this particular client and all the other clients that we're representing. It's a class action, so uh, it's a putative class action, so we in theory represent everyone. But in particular, the, the individuals who are older, medically vulnerable, um, what the effect of the coronavirus will have on them if they are to get it. 
Thank you so much um, for sharing that. I mean, once again, it, it really highlights um, how you know, the basic humanity of these individuals is, is not being recognized. Um, someone who has a very serious cancer and to be in those conditions, um, it's just horrifying. So thank you for the work that you're doing and that your counterparts are doing it. It's so important. Um, now, just to shift gears a little bit, we have a, a section um, called the Fast Five. They're not always super fast, I realize, by nature of what the questions are, but um, if you could indulge us a bit. Um, first, could you let us know what's something that our listeners can do to get involved? We would love the listeners to uh, look at our website, follow us on Facebook and Twitter on our social media, get to know the issues and get to know us. Um, if you are a law student or attorney, you know, we are, um, we welcome dialogue. And if you want to take a prisoner rights case yourself, we are very open to speaking with you, um, having a dialogue with you if you have questions. At times we do co-counsel with individuals that, that will kind of vary on the case, obviously. So that if people are more willing to take on prisoner rights cases, either pro bono or in collaboration with others, uh, that is a huge, there's a huge need, whether it's coronavirus related or not, in the areas of access to medical care, safety from violence, conditions of confinement, you know, access to the courts and First Amendment rights. Those are all really core issues that people who are incarcerated, they should, they should have that. They should have humane living conditions. And, uh, you know, we welcome others who, who do that. And of course, the last maybe not the last thing, but another thing people can do is make a donation. Um, we are a legal aid agency. We're a nonprofit agency. We operate on a, sh on a shoe shoestring, if you will. Um, and so uh, donations help us with things like filing fees, deposition transcripts, being able to pay staff to investigate these matters further um, that are all vitally important. And we also provide a lot of resources to individuals, to people who are pro se, um, so, you know, all the funds help with that as well. That's great. And we'll be sure to uh, link to the website uh, when we get this district out there. A second question, so within, within certain times, what's something that helps to keep you focused and grounded in this work? I think just keeping a positive attitude, understanding that this work is hard, social justice work is hard, and in particular, working with prisoners can be challenging. Our client base is not that popular in the general community. Therefore, taking cases to trial is always a challenge because we're concerned about the jury pool, how judges will react to them. Um, overall, there can be a lack of understanding or empathy about our clients, not seeing our clients as people. So every day can be a challenge, but I think looking at the positive change that we can make, that we have made, um, can be very helpful in moving forward. I think also just the human interaction. I have to admit that when I was in law school, prior to this, I really had no exposure or even, it wasn't really in my bucket list. You know, prisoner civil rights was not, I was very interested in social racial justice issues, children and youth issues, issues relating to the Asian American community. This was not really on my radar and I kind of fell into this. I needed a job. This was an opportunity. And of course now, <laughs> however, 14 years later, I'm still here. And, uh, and partly it's because my interaction with the clients has been so valuable, heartwarming and really rewarding that that's at the end of the day, what keeps me going. Thank you for that. 
And so along those lines, what's the change that could be made, that could be realistically made, that would have a really big positive impact on your clients and the broader incarcerated community? This might seem basic, but just if people could see our clients, if people could see prisoners and people are incarcerated as people and, and try to gain an understanding of them and their experiences, people who are incarcerated, perhaps they have a criminal conviction. Maybe that means they've done something that is wrong, illegal, or even immoral. At the same time, they are humans, they are people. That's something I've really learned in my time with the Pennsylvania Institutional Law Project is getting to know clients, um, understanding their struggles. Sometimes they, ha they have limitations. You know, people who end up in the criminal justice system, maybe they didn't have uh, the same access I did to different opportunities in life. Um, and so having an empathy and understanding for that, if that could be spread out rather than vilifying them, I think that would go a long way. And of course, I think I have specific ideas of how we might change things legally that would improve them, you know, more specifically, like amending or getting rid of the Prison Litigation Reform Act, for example. Um, but I think that comes out of this um, lack of understanding and empathy for people who are incarcerated. And we have to remember that, that there are individuals with families uh, who have connections to our community as well. That's such an important point. I think, you know, the dehumanizing factor um, around uh, prisoners is so tremendous and, and such a hurdle to get over. Um, so, yeah, I could see how that could, it's not basic at all. That's something you know, that would change so much would change. Um, given our current landscape, what worries you most about the future? There, I think there's a lot to be concerned about, especially in a uh, particular political landscape. Uh, I think that the dichotomy or the, the, the divide between the different sides, if you will, in our country it, um, is really harming to not only people who are incarcerated, but people in general. So that as a broad matter, I think that's certainly something of concern. I think the way the power structure is set up currently, it really favors those who are currently in power without as much look at those who don't. And you know, this is more than just people who are incarcerated, but looking at you know, people of color, immigrant communities, um, people who are poor, working poor, indigent, you know, we all kind of struggle in that framework. Um, so I think that's, that's a challenge always in, in making sure that things, our country and our laws and our system and our courts can be just and see everyone um, in, a, in a humane way. And uh, what's something, you know, do you have um, a mantra or something that you kind of say to yourself over and over again as you're going through these you know, difficult times and really getting down to Resilience is so important in this line of work. I think especially social justice work and in particular working with people who are incarcerated. Um, I don't know if I have a particular mantra. I think I once had a friend, uh, so I was in the Peace Corps and a very close friend of mine who was a volunteer from New Zealand used to always say, you know, everything passes. So both the good, but also the bad. So when things are really tough, <laughs> you know, and certainly in this line of work, 
uh, you know, I've lost jury trials, I've, I've had heartbreaks, you know, you get so invested in the clients and wanting to redress the harms they faced and when that doesn't, you know, and you feel like you failed in that, that can be so difficult. So, um, but you know, you just have to take a small break and then keep going and eventually that will pass and you'll move on. Um, at the same time, we've also, you know, I or the Pennsylvania Institute of Law Practice have also had some victories. And so focusing on that to make sure you can get to the next day. That's great. I think, um, given the, you know, the current moment, how helpful it is to remind ourselves that this too, you know, it will pass, it will pass. Um, well, I really, I can't thank you enough for taking time out of your day doing such important work to chat with, with me and, and to get this message out to our listeners. Um, thank you again so much, Suming. Um, oh, thank you so much for having me. It was a, a delight to be here, and I really appreciate your reaching out and inviting me to be here.